I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcasts is supported by Infratech. Bring indoor comfort to outdoor living with Infratech Comfort Heaters. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Morning. And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts Express. Jason, we're going to talk a little policy now, this episode. Government policy? Yes, your favorite thing, (laughs) government policy. So this will be interesting, although I think you will agree. We're going to chat about, uh, I don't know if you've been following along with this, but SB9, which is a Senate bill here in California, And this is kind of relevant on a national stage because I saw similar policy in Minnesota recently where they're essentially getting rid of this single family designation. Uh, But we're mainly zoning one. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk mainly about SB9, um, which is essentially aimed at boosting housing supply here in California. Uh, And the idea is to allow property owners to have two units on a parcel that is now zoned for single-family housing. But we'll dig into that with our guests today. Um, But before we get into that, quick nod to our sponsor. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must-have architectural feature, and Infratech Outdoor Electric Heating Systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient ambient warmth that allow homeowners to live outdoors during cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy 100 more nights a year outside. 
Architects love them because of their unparalleled versatility from heater capacities and colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They're also the only comfort heat company to offer smart home integration and hands-free voice-activated control. For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the USA at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of a job. Infratech is specified at the world's most prestigious properties. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcasts. Uh, Jason, one of the things that you, I think, will love, I know I love it, is that this is a private company and they are, um, everything is made here in the U.S. So with all of our... delays. Yeah. (laughs) That's the first thing that I thought of. Uh, Everything is made here in the U.S. So, and they're private companies. So not only are you supporting local business, uh, but you have everything made here. So shipping delays are not as much of a concern. So uh, check out Infratech. So now back to the conversation. I want to introduce our guests uh, who will help us dig into this topic of SB9. He is an architect from Hamida Architects. Please help me welcome Nadal Hamida. (laughs) Nadal. All right. Thank you for having me, Demetrius. and Jake. Thanks for joining us on this conversation. Before we jump into the SB9, uh, tell us a little bit about you and your firm. So uh, my firm specializes in high-end residential. I've worked on many things in the past, including multifamily, hospitality, commercial, anything, you name it. But I wanted to focus in on helping people achieve their dream home by making it comfortable for them, making a comfortable journey. So uh, making the, the process transparent. And this is a weak analogy, but when you're driving through the in-and-out drive through you see the process from making the fries to making the burgers. And that's what I wanted to incorporate in my office, something like that. So, yeah, in the past four years, went off on my own and established a small high-end residential firm operating in Los Angeles, Austin, and New York. Very cool. Uh, So I I hinted at what SB9 is. Are you seeing that sort of affect the work that you have going on right now Um, or conversations that are happening around your work? Yeah, I mean, I have two clients currently, uh, prospective clients that are asking about it. And it's a little kind of vague, of how we can achieve this at such an early stage because you know we can't do the drawings and submit it to the city yet. We have to look at the code and kind of work with what we have just briefly. Like you have to have a lot that's more than 2,400 square feet, for example, and mm-hmm. uh, split them up into 60 and 40%. So things like that we know, uh, but other things we don't know. So they're trying to set it up for next year. So they're, they're already doing the process of getting financed and trying to pull the trigger early before all this happens. Yeah. It's because it goes into effect January uh, 1, 2022. Correct. So uh, yeah, a lot of people are probably going to start looking to figure out what they can and can't do. And I think that's one of the um, 
the opposition to the bill is like, like how you pointed out, there's, there's still, uh, regulations as far as what what lots can do it or not because opposition to the bill kind of blanket says like people are going to come in and build uh four homes on every lot and it's going to be this massive infill of homes and it's just going to take over (laughs) and kill all the neighborhood fill uh that's not accurate at all um there's still restrictions on which lots can can actually absorb this um the ability to to add an additional home and uh or subdivide which is another element to it yeah and and another thing is you're not really increasing the density so for example if you have a single family lot and it is 10,000 square feet for just for example and your floor area ratio is let's just make the math simple it's 0.5 so you're allowed to build 5,000 square feet single family on that lot it's not like you can build more with the bill. You you can split the lot and build 2,500 on each parcel, but you can't build more. There is a little loophole to where you do need at least 800 square feet per unit. So if you have a lot that's 2,400 square feet and you split it in two, which is 1,200 and 1,200, and you wanted to get two 800 square feet units on each lot, you can do that. You can actually do more square footage because of the minimum square footage amount of 800 square feet per unit. Mm. And that's the loophole. That's yeah. that's what may drive the density up and and have neighbors get annoyed. But all in all, it's it's the same square footage and ratio. But if you do take the subdivision provision you do have to agree as a homeowner to live on the property for three years, right? Correct. Yeah, you do. At least one of the units have to be yours for three years. Yeah. So that that restricts developers from coming in and saying, hey, we're going to buy all this land, uh, lot split them, and do a four unit on this land, as opposed to somebody who needs to live there and rent it out for either income or things of that nature. Yeah, one of the other concerns that I saw is that people feel that, you know, homeowners are not going to take advantage of this. They, they don't have the funds to do so. Um, so developers are going to take advantage of this and come in and buy up all this land and build a bunch of uh, what we know here in California. I don't know how widespread this is, but small lot developments where the homes are really close together and you're cramming in as many as you can at super high prices. I personally don't see that happening because they're like you talked about, you know, you can do some some magical things with subdividing and getting smaller units and stuff. But the cost then goes up because you have to do a a lot of more fire rating because those homes start to get close together. Um, So you have fire uh, firewalls between both is probably what will have to happen. And if you're only getting two out of that maximum four the value may not be there. It may not bear the the cost to, to do something like that. So I, I'm not entirely concerned about it. Are you concerned? So currently the the duplex law, which allows you to build an ADU in your backyard, you have to keep them at least 10 feet apart. So I feel like that's going to be the case with, with this new law. You have, they can't be 
there can't be a firewall and have a unit on each side. There has to be a little bit of separation. So no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not concerned about developers just taking this and running with it. I think it'll be good for the density of Los Angeles, but it will also, I think the con to it is, for example, if you're living in a single family home and your neighbor's building four units, it might deter from wanting to live there anymore because mm. you're having a mix of uh, units on next to you that used to be a single family home, but they tore it down and now they're building four units. Mm-hmm. And it's not as intimate anymore. The community is not as intimate. It becomes a strategically, if you think of it, like just cutting uh, a square into two and then kind of populating those the rectangles with more units it becomes more of an incision more than than intimate single family residences that were built around a community yeah. but it can be a good thing that's how you know that's how new york got denser and that's how others other places got denser and allowed more people to live we we currently have a huge housing shortage and we're, this is not to say it's going to solve it but it'll help alleviate some of it the interesting thing about, you know, that that density that will occur is that a lot of this happens already just illegally. There are yeah. lots of people. I know when I was growing up, we had a house that was, uh, I want to say like 900 square feet was the, the base house. Um, we had an illegal conversion of a carport into what was my bedroom. And then we had a, a standalone garage that we ultimately converted into a unit that me and my mom moved into and my grandmother stayed in the house uh main house so let's hope building and safety doesn't listen (laughs) you're out of there now right you're good yeah we're out it's been 10 years we're out of there they can't come after they're gonna be like oh demetrius is uh he's into this stuff they're gonna follow him more (laughs) uh so and and we had neighbors that did a lot of illegal additions. So all of this stuff happens, but and it, it was never on the books. So your the value of your home never reflected that. Uh, so this will potentially help add some value to people's homes legally, and then they can you know pull equity out of that house to to continue yeah. to do more work or use it however they need it. I think it's gonna be interesting to see though what kind of pushback these people get when you start to do it in neighborhoods like you know, that whole NIMBY thing, not in my backyard and all that kind of stuff and whatever. Like if you go into a a neighborhood like mine, which is predominantly ranch style, single family, and you have these people that start wanting to chop and we got 10,000 square foot lot and whatever. Right. And start wanting to chop these things up and put a bunch of people in there. Whatever. Like, I mean, it's going to be farmers with pitchforks, you know, I mean, it's, it's a hundred percent the way it's going to be. And a lot of the ways, you know, if you're going to do, I don't know what the restrictions are and I know there's a lot to be learned on it, but you know, if you're going to do a, a 800 square foot ADU essentially, right. To, to rent out or whatever, but then you're going to want to have a two story now to, to gobble up some of that square footage or whatever it is or to add or make it livable for yourself. Like now you've got two story homes going in single family, you know, rent. And so you're just going to get a lot of that, that pushback. It'll be very interesting to see how that all sorts out. Typically, I think the existing restrictions still will fall into sure. place. Uh, so whatever height limitations, uh, style, all those things. It just allows you to add a second unit if you have the lot size. Right. Is that right? Uh, your your interpretation at all? Yeah, it's it's the same thing, same height, same uh, floor area ratio, same lot lot coverage. You're just allowed to split it in two, and 
actually sell the other lot. You can you can split your lot, build two units, sell the other lot to somebody else, and they can build their two units. So it, it doubles the amount of real estate in a way to where yeah. um, Los Angeles really needs it because we're getting pretty dense here and no land is available. So what they're trying to do is just maximize the amount of potential a lot has. And a lot of it, you have to demolish. Like, you would have to demolish a single family to do this. You know what I'm thinking, you know, as we, as we say that there's a, you know increasing demand for housing, right? And we're talking more like Southern California, LA or whatever. The data is not with that in the last three years, if you think about it, though because there's been more of an exodus than there has been an in, influx of people, right? There's more people leaving California these days for other po- political reasons we won't get into, okay, Demetrius? Um, I promise. Then there has been coming in. And so it's very interesting because for the first time in my life where I continue to hear people talk about this housing demand, this housing demand, this housing demand, I'm like, is there? You know what I mean? Like, is it really that way? And is it more so there's a demand for brand new housing in new communities where people continue to buy as opposed to the opposite? Um, how does the whole coronavirus thing, you know, affect this? Do you really want somebody that's only 10 feet away now in those type of areas versus whatever? You know, it's it's kind of an interesting thought because ultimately you're right. You're going to start to get more and more like San Francisco, more and more like New York, like the only, like God's not making any more land, right? So the only way to be able to do that is to go up or make things more dense. But it's, just, it's an interesting thought, you know, the population's increasing. So ideally you got to say there's there's more places that need to be housed, but or, or more people that need to be housed. But is that really solving a demand we really have? I heard someone recently pose the question of, is it a housing supply shortage or is it an affordability shortage? Um, It's affordability shortage. Which makes sense because like we have quite a few, like I don't even know, I lost count of how many uh, apartments have gone in around us recently. Um, But they're all high-end housing that's like, you know, the super luxury with a, bowling alley inside and all this other stuff Um, and you see it you see it on the streets too there's more homeless people on the street like it's it's the the rent is getting at a higher rate and it's pushing people either out of the state or unfortunately sometimes into the street and it's it's kind of sad to see but yeah i would i would agree with that that affordability thing as opposed to actually a housing shortage but the two with each other, they, they, they're working with each other. I think at the end of the day, we do need more housing, but they should also be affordable as well. And SB9 isn't, isn't an affordability law. It's, it's, it's just creating density. But I mean, ultimately too, if you think about it, it may not be an affordability law, but if it's creating a scenario where you do have smaller dwellings, the cost of that obviously is going to be less than it would have been if it was a 4,000 square foot house on that, you know, 6,000 square foot lot type of deal or whatever it was. Um, so maybe it kind of kind of helps with that as well, right? Because you're, you're forcing lower price just by a derivative of square footage. But as the owner, you're probably making more money or you're yeah. probably what, what you would rent out as a single family for say $3,500, you can rent each unit out at 1200 or something like that and make yep. 10 to 15% more, maybe 20. Agreed. So one of the things that I don't think people talk about enough that's happening is, you know, the, the convergence of boomers and uh, millennials where we're both targeting the same type of home. 
uh, sort of a starter home level. The boomers are stepping down because their kids are long gone and they um, may be retiring soon. So they're trying to get smaller homes on their fixed income. Uh, Millennials are trying to get their starter home or mid-level home. So there's this convergence of the two coming all targeting the same type of home, which also drives up the costs from the demand for that same type of home. Now, if you, with this SB9, if a boomer was living in their larger home, they could subdivide or uh, if they liked the neighborhood, they could subdivide or add on a second unit to rent out and still stay in their same neighborhood potentially and uh, continue on with life as is and have additional income flow um, or have their kids come live on their lot or whatever the case is. Um, I think this adds that additional element to allow them to stay in their home um, that may be too large for someone that's moving up and then leave all of that other housing stock at a decent attainable price for for everyone that's getting the starter homes and whatnot. In a residential area, which is kind of nice. uh, If you think about people who are worried about schools and the the quality of schools and being able to afford into a neighborhood move into a neighborhood that has those attributes and still being able to rent in that neighborhood i think is pretty awesome yeah there are a little i mean i just wanted to throw out just the restrictions and the 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 things that to look out for if you really do want to do this it's uh usually things that restrict projects like these are uh, one square footage two parking and three, the height limit. So it's it's all three of those that work together to kind of restrict your actual size and what you can put on the actual lot. At the end of the day, if you want a, if you want a bulky home, this is probably not for you. It's going to separate it into a quadruplex is what they call it. If you do the four units on, and, and you don't need to do a four, you can do three, you can, you can do two and one, you, you can do a mix and match, but um. If you like the comfortability of having a single family rear yard and side yards and something to just enjoy to yourself, this is probably something to not go for. Yeah. And that was, I don't think I I may not have made it clear, but the, um, the bill does grant a maximum of four units. So I just wanted to make sure that I clarified that. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you have a hundred thousand square feet of lot or 10,000 square feet, you can't split them up. Because the minimum lot size is 1,200 square feet, so you can't split the lot up, uh, you know, 50 times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's only one shot. Thank you so much, Nadal. Um, for those that want to follow along with you or continue the conversation uh, specifically with you, uh, how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way to follow along? Through my website, Hamida-Architects.com. And um, my email is nadal at hamida-architects.com. Cool. Thank you so much, Nadal. Thank you, Jason, for joining this conversation as always. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And we will talk again next week. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to Infratech Outdoor Comfort Heating for their support of this episode of Spaces Podcasts. Visit infratech-usa.com slash podcast to sign up for a free consultation 
and learn why Improtect is the choice for bringing indoor comfort to outdoor living. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.